You're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio with just a little bit of politics. Listen along as we interview some of the most experienced outdoorsmen in the industry today, where you'll learn valuable tips and tricks to make you a more successful hunter, shooter and fisherman. Here's your host of the Australian Hunting Podcast, Jason Selms. Welcome back to the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio. I'm your host, Jason Selms. It's an absolute pleasure to have you back for episode 45. And on today's show, I'm talking with the Liberal Democrats, David Lionhelm. Now, you might actually be asking me, Jason, who is David Lionhelm? What's his story? What's he about? Well, David Lionhelm uh, is part of the Liberal Democratic Party, which just won a seat in the Senate or will win a seat in the Senate. He's a Senate-elect uh, for June, July 2014. And that was in result of the federal election against Tony Abbott and Kevin Rudd, which Tony Abbott subsequently uh, became the Prime Minister of Australia. And a lot of people out there, the Greens, Liberal, Labor, even Tony Abbott himself, I think, has said, well, you know, really the people didn't vote for uh, David Lionhelm because of the name the Liberal Democrats, because he had the first position on the ballot paper. Now, the interesting part about that is, I find, is that either, either, sorry, liberal, I should say, either liberal think their voters are quite stupid, because I guess for anyone that doesn't know the difference between the Liberal Party of Australia, which Tony Abbott represents, or the Liberal Democrats, which David Lionholm represents, I mean, absolutely amazing that a lot of people could have possibly actually got that wrong. Uh, and yeah, maybe people didn't get that wrong. I guess we'll never know. And I guess at the end of the day, who really cares? Because David is going to be representing uh, the Liberal Democratic Party uh, in the Senate. Uh, David is also pro-firearm, pro-hunting, uh, and ha- and his base- the basic premise of the party is they won't ever uh, vote for an increase in taxes or a reduction in freedoms. Uh, and David believes, uh, and this is the interesting part, before I go on what David, some of the stuff we talk about on the show, a lot of people in Australia think we're, we are born uh, with just the, uh, to, to basically to own firearms, it is a uh, privilege given us to us by the police or by the government of Australia. Now, libertarians such as David uh, believe we are born with basically inherent rights when we're born, uh, whether that be to own a firearm, uh, whether that to be yeah, to run a business, whether that to be anything in this world, uh, less government interference and to make sure the government is staying out of our business. Unless we obviously do something wrong and then we should be punished to the full extent of the law. But the idea is to keep the government out of our pocket. And it's reprehensible in this day and age that we can't own a firearm and we can't own certain types of firearms. And I discuss all this, uh, including the National Firearms Agreements uh, with David in the show. And I asked David some pretty hard questions and he didn't falter. And this is probably the longest interview he's actually done since uh, uh, he found out he was going to be a senator-elect in 2014. And uh, I've got some of those views too if you go on my website. Actually, sorry, I'm in my YouTube page, Aussie Federal Control. Uh, I've been talking a lot about freedom recently, and uh, I think it's quite important, and I agree with that, the government should be staying out of our business. And, you know, for the freedom just to own firearms, the freedom to own firearms for whatever reason we choose, not to have a genuine reason. Uh, if I want to own a firearm because I want to own a firearm, I should be able to do that. If I want to own a firearm to do target shooting, well, then I should be able to do that too, with less government regulation. Obviously, we need to make sure we're taking firearms out of the hands uh, of criminals and the mentally ill that probably shouldn't hold a firearms license. But the inherent right to own that firearm without infringement or without uh, has been hassled by the government, which a lot of us know there's quite an arduous process to getting a firearms license. You have to join clubs all the time, genuine reasons, you know, need we go on. So it was great talking to David, I think it was really important. Again, I asked him some hard questions, he didn't falter, and uh, some questions that I think were really, really important to ask, and it was great having a chat to David. And I hope you guys enjoy this podcast, especially the part about being given back rights by the government. Uh, and being a sovereign, I think you'll really, really enjoy that question. You probably don't know what I'm talking about right now, but when you get into the show, absolutely, you'll know when you get to it. Uh, what have we got coming up at the moment? Not really much at the moment. Hopefully, I just heard uh, State Forest Hunting here in New South Wales is going to be back on by February 2014. Let's hope. Again, don't don't take the foot off the gas or the accelerator. Get those letters into your local member, Katrina Hodgkinson, Barry O'Farrell, uh, Robin Parker from the Environment and Heritage. Keep hassling them. Keep up the fight. That's really important. Uh, if you want to go to the website, australianhuntingpodcast.com.au, that's where you can go to listen to the show. 
or mainly iTunes as well. Uh, you can uh, download the podcast from iTunes and, and basically it downloads automatically uh, every time we release a show so you can keep checking your iTunes podcasts. Uh, Facebook, yeah, we just cracked over about 3,000 likes, which is fantastic. And you can go to Australian Hunting Podcast on the Facebook page. Join us. Post up your photos. I'd absolutely love to see. And you know, just just generally get involved in the talk on the on the Facebook page. It's really important. Uh, Twitter, AH Podcast. Of course, follow our Twitter feed, AH Podcast. Uh, if you want to email me, go to AustralianHuntingPodcast.com.au and click on the contact icon if you'd like to join me, send me a message, or you can email me directly, AustralianHuntingPodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Stitcher. If you're somewhere around the world and you've got a Wi-Fi, a couple of hours after we upload the show, it's available on Stitcher. And I've also amalgamated the AussieFeralControl.com.au website, which is now defunct and gone. I've amalgamated that into the AustralianHuntingPodcast.com.au page, the podcast page, uh, which basically keeps everything together. I want to start doing a lot more blogs, a lot more write-up, a lot more reviews. And also, if you're interested as well, please email me. And if you want to become a content creator, uh, you want to upload, you want to help out administrating on the uh, Facebook page, just send me a message. Tell me a bit about yourself, and I'll happily either add you as a content creator on the uh, uh, website so you can write up reviews, your hunting stories. Absolutely, that'd be be fantastic. Or I can put you as an admin on the Facebook page. really important. Uh, As always, share the Australian Hunting Podcast with your friends and family. If you know anyone, just tell them or send them a link that that someone that might enjoy hunting and shooting. Uh, If you want to advertise with the show, send me an email again. Uh, Click on the contact icon on the website and send me an email because we've got several uh, people on the show that like to sponsor the show or donate to the show. One of them is Australian Hunters International. .org.au. And you can, if you want to get your license, you're a new hunter, you want to hang out with like-minded people that love firearms and love this sport, certainly check out Australian Hunters International. Uh, they can certainly help you with every aspect getting your license. Even if you're experienced, you can go rub shoulders with like-minded people in the hunting, shooting and fishing industry. If you go on the website, australiahuntingpodcast.com.au, on the right-hand side under the social media icons, uh, there's basically a donations link. And this microphone I'm talking on now was uh, basically from the help that people uh, donated to the show, which which basically helped me get all this equipment to set up. It helps me with uh, the internet storage on the servers for my website and all the downloads that it receives. It just, just goes to absolutely everything. And if you listen to a couple of these latest podcasts and my intros, uh, from say the first, uh, you know, first one to twelve podcasts, you'll see a huge difference in the audio quality. And that was all thanks to you guys for donating to the show and helping me get a, more equipment to make this the best show that it is today. And in October two thousand and thirteen, we had twenty five thousand downloads of this show. Twenty five thousand of all forty two or forty three podcasts that were released at the time. I mean, three years ago, this was fifty to one hundred and fifty people listening to this show every week. Now it's now in a month. I just can't explain it. It's just absolutely amazing. And I thank everyone that's gotten stuff out of this show and continues to support the show. Thank you. Thank you very much from the bottom of my heart. I appreciate all you listeners, as I always do. You know, come and join us on social media. Come and join us on the uh, website. We'd love to hear from you. Love to see you. If you want to be involved in the Everyday Hunter segment, which is the one I'm running today, certainly send me an email if you want to be part of the show and you want to uh, get your points of view across and what it means to you to be a hunter, shooter, fisherman here in this wonderful country called Australia. So I guess, you know, we probably shouldn't worry about me talking anymore like I always do at the initial is you always want to get into the show and listen to the talent, which in this case is David Lionholm. So without further ado, let's get into my interview, the Liberal Democrats, David Lionholm. This is David Lionholm. I'm the Senator-elect for the Liberal Democratic Party and you're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast. David Lionhold, welcome to the Australian Hunting Podcast. Thanks for coming on the show to have a chat with us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. No worries. All right, mate, tell us a bit about yourself. I guess, you know, not only from a, a professional standpoint, but also how you got into hunting or shooting or fishing or all of the above. I'm the son of a farmer. Uh, when I was a, a young lad, I used to shoot a few rabbits, although I was a really bad shot. I'm not sure if my father ever knew that. Um, <laughs> and he was a bit reluctant to let me shoot. But my friends and relatives uh, would always let me shoot. But in fact, I used to trap rabbits and I paid for a watch out of the proceeds from trapping rabbits when I was a little fella. <laughs> so I've been, 
been around uh, firearms and uh, and hunting uh, pretty much all my life. Although um, we moved to the city uh, in my teens, and uh, I kind of lost contact with it at that point, but I got back into it uh, as I got a little bit older. Yeah, so I guess what what types of hunting and uh, shooting do you enjoy? You sort of just a hunter, a, a pistol shooter, a target shooter. What do what do you enjoy? My, my main shooting is uh, F class full bore, and yep. I do that as often as I've got time for. I shoot pistols as well. I have done that for a long, long time, and um, I have a farm, and it's it's basically just a recreational hunting farm, and uh, I go there about once a month and uh, um, terrorise the occasional rabbit and pig. <laughs> yeah, no, sounds like a lot of fun. So I guess, um, obviously, you're uh, in the Liberal Democratic Party, but how long has the LDP been a political party for? And obviously, just discuss with us uh, some of its policies, yeah, not only with firearms, but also some of its other policies as well. It was first established in 2001, and, and it achieved uh, federal registration in 2007. So we've been around quite a while. It's based on Liberal or libertarian philosophy um, that's a small government um, philosophy so the government uh, uh, should essentially get out of your way so that means low taxes um, personal choice and responsibility for that choice uh, being left alone um, a lot of people would recognize it as the liberal principle if you're not hurting anybody else and it's voluntary then it's really not anybody else's business and it's especially not the government's business yeah, exactly. What's I mean, I've no, I've noticed, and I've started talking about this quite a fair bit too about uh, freedoms, and uh, obviously, you know, coming up in the mid '90s, how freedoms have started to deteriorate. But I've also known a lot of people, especially on my Facebook page too. I've also known a lot of people starting to either they're not understanding about freedom, or, or they're willing to give it up so easily. Can you explain a bit more about freedom and people's apprehension about freedom? There's two types of freedom. There's economic freedom. Uh, and there's social freedom. That's how we describe them or divide them up. Economic freedom is uh, having control over your own money. So, so the government doesn't take as much from you in tax and uh, doesn't go and spend it supposedly on your behalf. Economic freedom means you're basically responsible for spending your own money and the government doesn't take any more than is absolutely necessary to maintain society. Now, our view is that the government takes way too much um, of our money and spends it on all sorts of things that it shouldn't be spending on, uh, spending money on, that we could do ourselves uh, much better than the government could do, and, and therefore we lack a lot of economic freedom. Yep. On, on the social side, it's basically how to, how to run your life. It starts you know, at, the, at the mundane level, so you're not allowed to ride a bicycle without a helmet on your head yep and even though the rest of the world thinks that's going way over the top you know Australian governments seem to think that's uh, that's a good idea um, so that that's at the sort of the mundane level and you can go all the way through to firearms where um, the government's got plenty of guns and uh, there's no shortage of guns for the police and the military and all that sort of stuff yep but but you and I as ordinary people um, you know we're barely tolerated to have guns so, and there's everything in between. It's um, it's trying to run your sex life, trying to run your social life, trying to tell you what you're allowed to smoke or not smoke and drink and not drink and eat and not eat and that sort of stuff. So it's it's the nanny state, the bully state, uh, the authoritarian state, all those sorts of things are, are linked into freedom. And in a free society, um, the government doesn't concern itself with whether you and I are making good choices, as long as we're not harming other people, yep. it's none of the government's business. We, and it doesn't really matter whether we're clever or stupid in the choices we make, they are fundamentally our choices. It actually goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks when they established democracy. They recognised there was a private realm and a public realm. Yep. And, and in the private realm, which is a lot of family issues and so forth, um, the government just didn't go that's it was none of their business yeah it's amazing isn't it how like freedom seems to be you know i've heard obviously a lot of the interviews that you've done on some of the media outlets 2gb uh on the tv i just watched one of your ones yesterday on youtube as well 
And it seems to be when people say like these micro or, or smaller parties, and yeah, when you say freedom, it seems to be like an out there subject for people. Like you know, it's it's, it's taboo. Why is that? There's a, we don't have a history of revolution in Australia, whereas America does. Um, Americans have rebelled against their governments or against authority. They have a history of it. And, and so you don't have too much trouble convincing Americans that their government is not always on their side, that it can be, in fact, um, um, an instrument of bad things. That's not our history in Australia. Apart from the Eureka stockade, we've had very few out-and-out rebellions against our government. So there's this assumption that um, the government is um, is good and benevolent and so on. But that's, yep. that's a bit like saying, you know, Big Brother does no harm, therefore Big Brother is good. Big Brother is, <laughs> big brother is still Big Brother, uh, no matter how you look at it, and uh, Big Brother is trying to tell you how to live your life. And uh, just because it might be well-intentioned doesn't mean it's legitimate or, or that we should accept it. Yeah, good point. Let's talk about some of obviously the policies in regards to firearms from the LDP. Like, what would we, what would we, not only the policies, but what would we like to see in the future? Obviously, I'm not, a, I, I don't agree with any, you know, fire, you know, firearms registries. I don't agree with classes of licences. What's your take on that? What are some of the policies, and what would you like to see for the future? Our policy is that a licence is legitimate, um, and the reason we we accept that, yep, is that. There are some people who shouldn't have access to guns. They're dangerous. Yep. Um, they have criminal intentions, or they're mentally unsound, or whatever. And but it's all about the person. At the end of the day, an individual can be dangerous with anything, anything at all. And and it's not about the gun. I don't think it's legitimate to say that certain types of guns are so much more dangerous than another type of gun that they should require special treatment. But there are certain people who are far more dangerous than other people, and the way to prevent them from getting, license, uh, getting access to firearms is to have a licensing system. So we're in favour of licences, yep. and we think that you should have an assumption in favour of a licence by just by being a person, a, a citizen, but, um, but you can lose that. You can lose that if you are uh, dangerous to to other people. Now, not dangerous to yourself. You own your own life, so you can kill yourself if you want to, but you're not allowed to do harm to other people. Yep. You're not allowed to threaten them yep. um, or uh, frighten them or any of that sort of thing. And so there are various things that, that should um, disqualify you from having a license. But once you have a license, it really doesn't matter what kind of a gun you have. So we can't see any point in registering them, um, having uh, special categories of them. Um, permits banning. to permits to acquire gone. Oh well, well permits to acquire are ridiculous, based, isn't it? Well, that's based on gun registration. I mean, gun registration is yet to solve its first crime. So, <laughs> good point. There's no, there's really no benefit in any of that. It's just unnecessary. New Zealand doesn't think registering anything other than pistols is required. Uh, Canada's recently abandoned uh, um, yep. registration of long arms. Exactly. And and the reason is that it was expensive and and you know, and didn't do anything, didn't achieve anything. Uh, it's really no different here. Australians are no different from New Zealanders or Canadians in, in almost any respect. So uh, it just doesn't achieve anything. So we're, we're quite comfortable with the idea of licences and we think um, after a person is licensed, it really doesn't matter what kind of gun they've got. So therefore there's no point regulating them. The only thing is... Um, Registration of pistols has been in place for such a long time in Australia, since the 1920s, as I recall, mm -hmm. that everyone has adjusted to it. So therefore, removing registration of pistols would probably not be our top priority. We'd rather go back to the pre-1996 days when shotguns and rifles were, weren't registered and see how that went and let people adjust to it. I mean, at the end of the day, we have to bring... The Australian public with us. Exactly. We, yep. we can't have everybody um, quaking in their boots, even if it's over nothing. And uh, so we think, in the first instance, uh, no registration of long arms would be the way to go. And then, uh, once the comfort factor goes up, um, let's consider whether pistols should be included. Yeah, no, good stuff. Oh, tell us, we'll go into a few of those questions later as well, but you, obviously you, you're going to be a newly elected to the Senate. What was the preparation like in, say, the lead up to this uh, election? 
Jason, um, we took 12 years to become an overnight sensation. Um, <laughs> um, long time, a lot yeah. of work. Yeah. Um, I mean, since the election in 2007, we've been sort of aiming for this day. Um, we've built the party up. We've, we've promoted it in certain circles. We've attracted support in certain circles and yep. um, got the membership up over 3,000 now. Yep. Uh, we've got operating branches in uh, Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, Western Australia. Um, so it's it's quite a sizable organisation now. And, uh, you know, our day, our day came. Um, you know, the, some of the media would have you um, believe that we came from nowhere but and, and it was nothing but luck. But... Yep. You know, the old argument is the harder you work, the luckier you get. That very much applied to us. Uh, we, there was a lot of hard work went into it. We didn't need very much luck to get elected for me to get elected. Yeah, we're speaking about that. I know you're involved with the Liberal Party before, so we'll, we'll talk about that. But uh, the media, you know, these election analysts or so-called analysts say, you know, it's because of the first position on the ballot paper, and in fact, you know, that people voted for you thinking they were voted for the Liberal Party. So I guess, do you think that's accurate? And do you think, I mean, it seems the Liberal Party think uh, the, the citizens of Australia are stupid because they can't tell the difference between the Liberal Democratic Party and the Liberal Party of Australia. So what's sort of your take on that? Yes, there, are, there probably are a few people who voted for us thinking that we were the Liberals. But, and the Liberals made life hard for themselves because they didn't appear on the ballot paper as just the Liberals. It was Liberals slash the Nationals on the ballot paper. So... Um, if people were looking for the Liberal Party or, or something just plain Liberals, they wouldn't have found it. Um, so it possibly was a factor. Um, there was also a factor in being first on the ballot paper. Every election, being first on the ballot paper is worth between 1% and 2% of the vote. That yep. always is the case. Uh, we got that, that position just by virtue of being uh, lucky. And um, so... There was that factor, plus there probably was a few people who thought we were the Liberals, even though the, uh, you know, the names are... Uh, well, the one word is different. And, um, but there were also there was a lot of people looking for someone to vote for in the Senate, um, and they weren't keen on voting for the Coalition. They weren't keen on voting for Labor or the Greens. Yep. They were just looking for someone else to vote for. Our, um, we've got a nice sounding name. It sounds reassuring. We sound like a serious party. Yep. Um, we think quite a lot of people voted for us for that reason. Now, if you look at it, the the um, Senate vote on a national basis, 24% of the people who voted did not vote for either the Coalition, Labor or the Greens. 24%. That's a huge proportion. And, uh, you know, they were looking for somebody else to vote for. So... The fact that we got 9% um, out of that 24%, it's not that surprising. Yeah, no, no, I agree 100%. Now, just about your time in the Liberal Party too, what sort of, what did you do around then and how did you feel, probably like most people, when, you know, John Howard decided to, you know, make a significant change to, you know, firearms laws with the National Firearms Agreement back in 1996? Yeah, that that was the final straw. Um, in 1996, I was already involved with the Shooters Party in yep. New South Wales, yep. and uh, because the firearms laws had been getting worse in the previous few years, I could see the way it was heading. And uh, then when uh, Paul Arthur occurred and Howard decided to impose his um, prejudices on the rest of us, um, then that, that was the final straw as far as I was concerned. Um, and uh, I just uh, walked away from the Liberals at that point. I hadn't been a very active member. I went to branch meetings occasionally and and um, uh, when I lived in Tasmania, I'd actually been to the uh, the state conference and uh, and um, had taken a bit of interest to that level. But uh, you know, my my activity level was not high. I had uh, a business and uh, all sorts of things. Yep. Do you believe those firearms laws, obviously the change of categories, having a genuine reason? I mean, we'll talk about Australia wide here, not only New South Wales. But do you believe this has had uh, an effect? on crime here, not only in New South Wales, but obviously around Australia? Well, the statistics show it hasn't. There's been several very good quality studies on that using ABS statistics, and um, by statisticians who know far more about analysis than I ever do, yep. I ever will, and they've basically shown that it has had no effect. The 
the gun laws have had no effect, that um, murders, for example, were slowly declining before 1996. That's right, yep. And they continued to decline at exactly the same rate after 1996. Now, there are people around, of course, who say, well, that proves the gun laws had an effect. Well, that just proves they don't understand statistics. And, <laughs> yeah. there, are, and there are also some who say, well, there have been no massacres um, since 1996 in the gun laws. Except there have been, they just haven't been with guns. And um, so the question then arises, okay, is, it, is there some sort of um, difference between massacres between being massacred by a gun or between uh, massacred by fire. Yep. So the, the massacres have been the Childers Backpacker um, fire, Yep. Yep. the nursing home and uh, the Snowtown murders. There may have been another one too, I just can't quite recall. Yep. So, but I mean in each case um, a number of people were killed deliberately by an individual, so they were a massacre. Uh, it's just that they weren't performed with a gun. Now, you know, in terms of the outcome, the tragedy, all the rest of that, I can't see the difference. But yet some people will say, oh, well, um, we we banned guns, at least they w didn't occur with guns. Um, you know, I don't get that. Yeah, no, me either. And we've seen also New Zealand hasn't had a, uh, a mass shooting since, I think, was it roughly 97? And that's been, what, same thing, 16, 17 years now. They still have access to, you know, pump shotguns, semi-automatic shotguns, centerfire rifles, AR-15s, you know, mass, you know, mass murder, and, you know, the world hasn't fallen over, has it? Yes, no, that, that's quite right. Um, there hasn't been... Uh, anything like that in New Zealand and they didn't go down the path they were they were asked to go down the same path as Australia by Howard and the government in New Zealand said no we don't think there's any need to do that and they've been shown to have made the right decision it's also worth remembering that before Port Arthur the worst massacre in Australia had also been committed with fire it was the whiskey a go go fire oh, yeah. in Brisbane and uh, I can't remember, but 20-odd people were murdered as a result of that. And it was a fire started with uh, paint thinners, I think it was, in, deliberately thrown into a disco in Brisbane. And uh, up until Port Arthur, that was Australia's worst massacre. So really, I mean, taking firearm massacres, uh, you know, they're just a small segment of uh, mass murders, really. Yeah, no, good point. I've got, uh, got an email here from uh, one of the guests. And it was actually, I think this is a really, really great question, actually. He says, the, L the LDP say they would never vote for an increase in taxes or a reduction in freedoms. He says, but let's say you were asked to vote on a policy involving more taxes, but in exchange for an increase in freedoms. And he says, obviously, in regards to firearms, what would you do in this case? Yeah, I'd rather have an easy question. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think... Uh, I suppose if it meant um, abandoning the National Firearms Agreement yep. and rolling back the laws back to 1996, um, that would be a very large increase in freedom. Yep. And if the tax increase was quite small, perhaps you know that would be a fair trade-off. Yep. I've been asked the other way around, would I vote for... Um, a reduction in freedom in some respect if it if there was a trade-off in some some other area um, I'm opposed to the paid parental leave for example yep. the, the, Gabbard, the Abbott's um, proposal yep. Yep. Be because it's taking money from people who don't have children and giving it to people who do have children and having children is a choice and we shouldn't pay for other people's choices yep. and I've been asked would I agree to uh, support that if there was a, a, tr a trade-off that was worthwhile. And my answer was that I might, unlikely, very unlikely actually, but I might if, say, company tax, which I think is probably the main tax that holds back prosperity and job creation, so company tax was reduced from 30% to 25% or 20% or something like that, then perhaps I would hold my nose and do it. Um, but it would have to be a pretty sizable um, compensation, offsetting compensation, yep. um, and where a, and such as a reduction in company tax of that order. Company tax is a major break on economic act activity. 
companies are the employers of most people. Um, what they do, their prosperity, how well they do, has a very big effect on um, on the, uh, most of our prosperity. And uh, taking the uh, handbrake off them is a major would be a major achievement. Yeah, no, that was a good question. I thought it was a great question to ask, actually. I didn't think of that myself, and I thought that would be a great question to ask because, you know, as sometimes in the Senate, things may come up or something may happen where some decisions do need to be made, and I guess that's up to you to assess each one as it comes up. No worries. I've got to, uh, do you believe firearms ownership uh, in Australia uh, is a privilege, should be a right, or is a, is a right as a byproduct of freedom? Now, that's a very good question. Um, there are two... You actually have to get a little bit philosophical here. Yeah, that's right. Um, you have to ask yourself, where do our rights come from? Um, do we have our rights by virtue of the fact that we're just who we are, people? Yep. Or do our rights come to us by uh, the good graces of the government? Uh, I happen to believe uh, it's the former, that we are born with our rights. Um, some people describe that as natural rights. I, I use the word inherent rights. But by, just by virtue of being people, for example, we have a right to right, right to life and liberty and, as the Americans would say, the pursuit of happiness. And we didn't get that right from the government. And I don't think any of our inherent fundamental rights came from the government. Some of our rights are protected by the government. Some of them are defined by the government in legislation and so forth. But the government doesn't grant us our rights. They can only take them away. There's, there's uh, two philosophers with diametrically opposed um, perspectives on this, Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. Um, yep. I haven't got time to uh, explain them in any that great detail. Yep. But, but in very briefly, Hobbes says life outside of uh, civilization is nasty, brutish and short and that people are in constant war. The only way to avoid that is to surrender your rights to the sovereign and the sovereign then grants you back some rights to allow a society to operate, but only as much as is needed and, it, and the sovereign can take those rights back at any time. So in other words, all your rights come from the, the sovereign or in modern terms, the government. Mm. Um, now you can see where that leads. Absolutely. And, and the Greens, for example, have pretty much the, the view that um, you don't have any right to anything much unless the government says you do. Now, uh, my view is the other one, the John Locke view, which is that um, people are essentially um, peaceful and get on with each other pretty well, but in order to allow an orderly society and, uh, and the conduct of um, trade and so forth, we surrender a few of our in inherent rights to the government, which then uses those rights in a productive manner. And so, for example, we might surrender, or not so much surrender, but um, accept the authority of a criminal justice system in order to protect private property and, and individuals' um, um, safety and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So, so, in other words, you only surrender the rights that you, um, you want to and that you think are necessary to the government for society to function. And you don't surrender any more than that. There's, so, there's, so there's quite a limit on it. And if the government starts getting too big for its boots, you take those rights back again. Now, the Americans who wrote the, the Constitution, they were very, very sure about the John Locke approach. They have no doubt in their mind that um, we, have, we all have our rights. They don't come from the government. And pretty much all the government can do is um, uh, take them off us if we allow it to. So if you work from that, that perspective, um, the right to own firearms is inherent. It's, it's, it's a, right to, a right to own firearms and the government can take it off you, but uh, you can also disagree and say, well, the government shouldn't take it off you. Now, we don't fight for our rights very hard in Australia. We're pretty passive people. Whereas America, they fight very, very hard. They have the Second Amendment, which says the government can't take your right to the guns off you yep and they fight like crazy they don't give an inch and they do. they're very very successful at it too mm. um, can work be done obviously when you become the next elected was it 2014 mid 2014 can work be done do you think to amend the national firearms agreement in any form at uh, the senate level it's a bit too soon to say at the moment um, 
there are some things where I think I may be able to have an influence. Um, Malabar is a good example in Sydney yep. and, and the threat to that, Absolutely. Uh, to the um, uh, continuation of shooting there. Imports of firearms, firearm parts, um, even knives, that sort of stuff is subject to fairly whimsical, uh, even capricious at times, bureaucratic intrusions. Uh, even just bringing in a telescopic sight, for example, can sometimes be a problem because I'll say, oh, it's a firearm part, you can't have it, that kind of thing. So, so it's possible that something might be done about that. The firearms agreement, I don't know. I don't really know how embedded it is. I will make it my business to find out, and if there's something can be done, I will try. But I, I really need to be realistic about this. I'll be one senator out of 76 yeah. of them, and... Uh, uh, we may need a bit more. I, I mean, if, if at some stage the government ever really desperately needs my vote, it'll be on my agenda. Yeah, good stuff. Firearms laws are obviously a state issue, and we've you know, seen you know, John Howard puts you know, pressure on the states in '96. Uh, if you, do you see yourself having a time where, as you just said, the federal government may need your vote? And if so, what would you say, you know, top two or three either policies or what would be on your agenda to push with uh, the, at the Senate level with the, the Abbott government? Well, one of the issues, or I suppose amongst the top issues, would be fiscal responsibility. That's bringing the budget back under control, stop spending more money than we have. It's, this is not a firearms issue, but what it, I guess what it demonstrate is, demonstrates is the Liberal Democrats is a lot more than a single-issue party. We're a broad-based, uh, philosophical-based party. So bringing spending under control, stopping waste, um, not running up huge national debts, is very important to us. So we would like to see the government only spend money on things that really, really matter and save money and then lower taxes. So that's, that's a very high priority. But there are nanny state issues and annoying things that are, originate from the national government, the Commonwealth government, that we may be able to do something about. This constant hiking of tobacco taxes, for example. Yep. Um, there's a lot of people whose who's only pleasure in life really is smoking and... Uh, and uh, uh, taxing them is, uh, is really causes hardships. Stupid ideas like the Alcopops tax, uh, yeah. um, advertising restrictions on food, um, uh, alcohol, that sort of stuff. Those sorts of nanny state, you know, we know better than you, um, we're going to tell you what's best for you type stuff. Um, I think they are, you know, I can poke at those things occasionally and embarrass the government into backing off from time to time. Mm. We we're talking before about New Zealand, as I said, with having you know, reasonable firearms laws and haven't had any you know, sort of mass shooting since 97. But what makes, you know, we've also seen Canada as well. We've also seen the United States fighting against uh, you know, Barack Obama. But what makes Australia different to these other countries? And uh, you know, could, their, could their reasonable laws back to pre-1996 work here again? Well, um, Tough gun laws have never had an effect on um, crime, um, violent crime, anywhere in the world. And there's quite a lot of countries where that's been shown. Mexico, Jamaica, UK, Ireland. Um, and when you compare Australia's tough gun laws with, people, with comparable countries that haven't had such tough gun laws and say, well, what, what's so different? And the answer in terms of uh, outcomes is no no different. The only difference is the nature of the gun laws. And it, some people will say, well, it makes me feel more more safe knowing that gun laws are really strict. But that's an ignorance position that they don't understand is that the only people who obey to the gun laws are law-abiding people. And people who are likely to do them harm disregard them under any, under, under any circumstances. So it really doesn't make any difference to to their safety, but some people like to think that. Now, um, unfortunately, we were inflicted by with John Howard, who um, who had that point of view. He happened to be the Prime Minister, newly elected, and uh, the Commonwealth Government controls the purse strings of the states, and uh, so the end result, as they say, is history. Yeah, I still uh, still have debates with friends, and some of them still vote for the Liberal Party, even though they're shooters, and it's still... Mind boggles me to this day how people can vote after all the legislation that's gone through for firearms owners. 
to still want to give the Liberals a second chance. I just don't understand it. But, mate, are you a supporter? Uh, we've, oh, so I'll go back and say that again. We've obviously seen in New South Wales, I mean, obviously you live in uh, New South Wales as well, the attack from the O'Farrell government. We've seen the ammunitions bill. We've seen the recently suspended uh, uh, suspension on state land uh, hunting, the suspension of state forest hunting, I should say, and also the uh, National Park, which has now turned into a culling program. Are you a supporter of public land hunting here in New South Wales? If so, why? And if not, why not? Well, um, hunting on public land uh, involves volunteerism. It's, it's volunteers giving up their own time to achieve a socially useful outcome. It's, it's really no different from the Rural Fire Service, the volunteers of the Rural Fire Service, or the SES. Volunteers are the backbone of society, of civil society. They are very, very important. We have volunteers working in charities and all sorts of other places as well, helping out the less fortunate. Um, so volunteer hunters who want to go out, use their own time, their own cost, and control feral animals, I think it's admirable. So I'm all in favour of it. I actually think that debate has been won, though, in New South Wales. I actually think the federal government accepts that that proposition, at least to a point. Yep. Still a bit of there's still a bit of evidence of material impact to be um, to be generated, I think, but that will come. Um, but your, your question had two components: the ammunition bill, which the federal government introduced. I think that's just obnoxious that is, sorry, rubbish obnoxious. <laughs> yeah, that it really is obnoxious the the um, abandoning of the game council to be frank it didn't surprise me um, I the game council was operating outside the normal parameters of a public publicly funded agency if if the game council had been fully funded from licenses then it probably would not have occurred mm. it would have been able to say well it's not costing the taxpayers of New South Wales any money. I was actually on the Game Council when it was first established. I was a councillor. Yep. And, and the intention was that it would be fully self-funded. Um, at the time, I was concerned. I had no, no say in its makeup, and it was made up very heavily uh, of Shooters Party supporters. Yep. And at the, at the time, I thought, this is risky. This is very risky. The objectives of the game counts were sound, yep. but but it's uh, it's being politicised here, and um, uh, so it, it didn't surprise me too much that the O'Farrell government eventually said, in its current uh, structure, it can't continue. It was just and, and especially when it was costing taxpayers money, I wasn't too too surprised that that occurred. I would be very disappointed if. It's new version under the Department of Agriculture, or whatever they call it. Primary Industries, yeah. Primary Industries. If it it uh, constrained this the use of volunteers to control feral animals, so if if as a result of its approach, volunteers said it's not worth it to go out there and shoot foxes and pigs and goats and things like that in public land, yep. that would be a bad outcome. But but as long as that doesn't occur, I actually don't care that it's being replaced by another approach. I don't mind that. If it, if it results in the government believing that it's on a better footing and is therefore more committed to it, then that can't hurt. Yeah, it's just going to be interesting to see how it sort of rolls out. I mean, I did watch the, some of the debates last night. I did see Duncan Gay, the Roads Minister, or whatever, he, when he was talking in the upper house. You know, they, they were, they did seem, from what I could see, to accept that. You know, the Greens obviously keep wanting to talk about feral animal control, and it's all about feral animal control. And what people can't seem to under, understand also is that people enjoy going hunting. It's not, it is about feral control, but it's also about enjoying somebody's pastime i enjoy it I, I, I love going hunting sometimes it's not about uh shooting an animal it's getting out with friends family camping enjoying a, a beer over the campfire and a, and, a, and a you know a nice cooked meal that's what but it did seem to me from what duncan gay was saying that they were they do finally admit that people do enjoy it and that's what he said and it was quite interesting but we'll get on to the next one too i find this is a good one when you spoke i think it might have been 2gb on uh, concealed carry of firearms um uh, do you think it could work here in Australia? And what do you think the benefits would be? Because we have seen recently too, I mean, 
you know, uh, drugs. There is a drug market. There's also, in my opinion, there's a, a, a quite a large illegal firearm market because firearms like AR-15s, yeah, the AK-47s, there's firearms they're finding now that have never been uh, ever to be sold in Australia and they're finding them on the street. So if we were to either allow concealed carry or allow a, uh, to legalise some form of uh, drugs here, would we then cut out a lot of that you know, illegal, say, and it's not just bikers, there's a lot of people out there, there's the, you know, the drug kingpins. If we cut a lot of that and legalise it, will that cut out a lot of the problem? Well, yes. When when something is prohibited, you automatically create a black market. So, so there are a lot of illegal uh, guns out there, just as there are illegal uh, drugs. And uh, the way to deal with those is not to have um, more and more police running around in black pajamas, bristling with guns themselves. Um, that's there's not that's never solved any of those situations, as far as I'm aware. Yep. Um, a much better approach is to manage it. Um, regulate it and and uh, take away the incentive for the um, criminal element to get involved, and that goes for drugs as well. Yep. I'm not suggesting you you give drugs a carte blanche, but there are better ways of doing it than than strict enforcement of, and prohibition. Mm. On on the subject of concealed carry, though, I mean, if you said you know should we have it tomorrow in Australia, my answer would probably no, because most Australians are not familiar with what guns do, they're not familiar with uh, their limits and the fact that they are really just inanimate objects and don't go out and shoot things willy-nilly without a person behind it. They really just don't get that. And we also have a, a very long way between where we are today and that situation. We are not allowed to have anything for self-defence, anything at all, um, in our possession. That includes non-lethal methods. So uh, you can't have pepper sprays, you can't have mace, you couldn't have a personal taser. Yep. You're, not, you're not even allowed to have a bulletproof vest, a jacket, which you know is absurd. It's classified oh. as an offensive weapon or a dangerous <laughs> weapon or something. It is just obnoxious. You can't have a pocket knife. You couldn't even have a pointy stick if the objective of it is to defend yourself. And we are a nation of defenceless victims. We are totally dependent on the government to save us from um, bad guys. Now, um, I've, I've said in interviews that the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun, which is true. So you have a criminal with a gun in Australia, um, and where are the good guys going to come from? Only the police. And as they say... Um, when seconds count, the police are minutes away. That's right. So, so you know, we are defenceless. And I, so I think if in relation to the concealed carry of firearms, although I agree with it in principle, and uh, as a long-term pistol shooter and, uh, and a user of guns, and I don't, don't scare me, you know, I would contemplate carrying a gun for self-defense from time to time, although I must admit I don't feel at risk very often. But yeah. the... The, um, the principle is having the means of self-defence. So I think the first step would be um, get away from this idea that you cannot have anything for self-defence. You should be permitted to carry, at, at the very least, um, non-lethal means of self-defence. And uh, the, you know, the notion that our wives and our daughters and, and so forth are also defenceless victims is just obnoxious. I agree, and a friend just told me the other day too, he said, it's funny how you can own you know, 308s or a 338 Lapua Magnum, yet he said they won't allow airsoft into Australia, you know, and um, you know, which is, a lot of people say is completely ridiculous, and you know, how can I own one, how can I own a 338 Lapua Magnum, but I can't uh, enjoy a sport involving, you know, running around that's very similar to paintball. In, in airsoft, I mean, it's just getting ridiculous, but getting back on that self-defense... Yeah. Uh, one of our policies is actually complete deregulation of airsoft we just we just think they are so close to being toys that that the whole idea that they should be regulated is too silly for words uh, <laughs> yeah, I remember a friend had a great 
uh, talk about it the other night. We're having a good laugh. He, he just says, I cannot understand, even comprehend what the government thinks about it. But getting back on that self-defence and self-defence in the home, I mean, I agree with you. I think it's totally reprehensible in this day and age that someone gets into your home and, you know, I'm a victim and I'm being put on trial. So obviously, obviously I'm, I know what you're going to say, but do you obviously believe in self-defence in the home as well of your family and, and your belongings? That's probably step two. Yep. So step one is non-lethal means of self-defence um, being allowed again. They used to be, of course, but um, they are, they've been banned in the last 20 years or so. So I think step one is non-lethal means of self-defence. Step two would be lethal means of self-defence permitted in the home. So you're allowed to have a shotgun or a pistol or something like that yep. for self-defence in your home. And then step three would be, okay, if you're allowed to have that in the home, now you're allowed to have that outside the home as well. Mm. So yes, I'd, I'd agree. But I mean, you know, public opinion is not with us on this at the moment, so we have to be you know, a little bit clever about it. Yeah, what about, I just, I just thought of this one just then, what about safe storage? I mean, I lock my firearms up because my main reason is I don't want to get them stolen. I've got, you know, quite a collection. I love that collection. I, you know, don't want people to come into my home and take them. But how do you feel about the police? You know, I've heard stories. I've interviewed a, a Stephen Mainstone, one of our lawyers, who does a lot of firearm work. And some of the charges that police are bringing against uh, firearms owners for, say, you know, not knowing the weight of a safe or, you know, tr transferring firearms in transport, leaving one round out and then having their licence with no discretion, having their licence taken away from them. So what do you think about safe storage and uh, firearms obviously being placed in a safe at all times? Um, it's part of a, um, a pattern of uh, legislation, if you like, to make it uncomfortable and generally inconvenient to own firearms. There is a school of thought um, in the, among the policy makers, and the policy makers are primarily bureaucrats more than they are politicians, it must be said. You need to understand that often our worst enemies are faceless public servants rather than the politicians. Politicians, their main priority is getting re-elected and keeping their jobs rather yeah, than good yeah. policy. Yeah. So, um, so amongst the policy makers, there is this perception when they're drafting legislation relating to firearms, let's make it as inconvenient as possible annoying as possible, then people will give up. And the reality is a lot do give up. It's, it's really unfortunate. There would be a lot more people involved in the shooting sports if it wasn't so inconvenient. And this concealed, uh, this uh, storage uh, issue, there are elements. I mean, yes, it's good to keep your guns out of the hands of burglars. <coughs> and I, I agree with you. Yep. That's my priority, is to keep them away from burglars. But this uh, idea that you leave a round out of your safe and therefore you're pinged, or it's not bolted down with four bolts and and you know three is not enough and all that kind of nonsense. Yep. That's just entrapment. That's just part of the process of um, making it too difficult for you, and in, in the hope that you will give up. Mm. Yeah, I hope people, you know, for people out there, they hope they, hope they you know, get into the shooting sports. I mean, the numbers are growing. I mean, as far as I'm aware now, give or take, there's just as many firearms now, uh, legal firearms, than there was, you know, before they handed in the, you know, all the firearms in 1996. So, and, and it's still dropping. So, therefore, you know, if you're trying to remove firearms from society, that doesn't make sense to me because crime's going down, yet firearms ownership is going up. Yes, that's right. In fact, it makes you laugh when, when you hear on the... TV or the radio, uh, somebody in the government police often saying they're taking guns off the street and what they're referring to is um, seizing the guns of uh, some poor bugger who's, um, who's infringed these minor rules and the guns were never on the street in the first place. But you're right, um, gun ownership is going up. It's, it's very nice to see that, that Australians are not so cowed by these laws that they've given up um, entirely, and that many of them say, "Well, to hell with it! I'm not going to let them beat me." I, I think it's wonderful. Yeah, no, exactly. All right, I got some listener questions, David. Four before we finish off with a story, and then um, and then we'll go. I got Will Will Lane. He says, "What are your expectations uh, of the future? You know, obviously moving forward. Let's say over the you didn't say this, but over the next say ten or twenty years with firearms ownership, and uh, what what do you think you know, is is ahead for us?" There's two possibilities there. One is it'll get worse. It'll become like the UK, pistols banned, and there's quite a big push on for um, pistols to be banned, starting with probably semi-autos, and uh, then after that it wouldn't be long, 
because there wouldn't be too many people who wanted to stick with uh, anything else after that anyway. So they think <laughs> they think it was easy to um, uh, to ban what's left over. So the UK went down that path. So that's one possibility, and just getting worse and worse and worse till you get to the point where, um, like Japan, where about the only thing you can own is a shotgun, and even then you're fingerprinted and uh, you're virtually followed every time you go outside. So it's uh, it, we could go in that direction. Um, the other the other possibility is that my election and people like me, who say enough is enough, that you know the, the government is just intruding into our lives too much, that we are in charge, not the government is in charge, that we don't trust the government, and it's not up to the government to, to say we don't trust you. Um, you know we're the boss, and the government is the servant, not the other way around. Yep. That's the other possibility. Our, you can be pessimistic one day and optimistic the next. Um, at the moment, my election has made me optimistic. I have at times been pessimistic, so I'll get back to you about which one was right. <laughs> Just being there might make a difference, I think. you know, I guess time will tell, won't it, David? I guess time will tell. Mm. Um, I've got time another one. Sorry, go on. Yeah. Yeah, I, well, I mean, I hope my, my election makes a difference, and I certainly uh, you know, intend it to, if, I can, if it's at all possible. Yeah, exactly. Good stuff. I've got another one from Daniel Gregg. He says, I'm curious as to how he plans to implement possible firearms policies or at least suggest them into the sphere of the Senate in government. Mm-hmm. Well, um, the, uh, the issue, I, or the area that I think that I may be able to do some good is to um, convince the Commonwealth government to get out of um, bossing the states around, if you like. Let them leave them alone. I mean, at the end of the day, firearm regulation is a state issue. It's not a federal issue. John Howard made it a federal issue by controlling the purse strings, and so the National Firearms Agreement is a consequence of that. But if if we can convince the states that they don't really have to continue saluting the Commonwealth flag, that they can do their own thing. And if we can convince the Commonwealth that really it's got enough on its plate looking after the things that it should be doing and not messing with the states, then, and it doesn't have to be specific to firearms, there's lots of other things that that applies to, then uh, I think the scope there for an improvement in, in the firearms uh, regulation. I can't change the New South Wales Firearms Act or the Firearms Act in any of the other states from the Senate, even if I had a majority of people voting um, to support anything I said, that couldn't happen. So the best thing I can do, I think, apart from maybe helping with some Commonwealth Rangers and Malabar's at the top of my list there, yep. um, is uh, to convince the Commonwealth, um, one way or another, to leave the states alone and do their own thing. Now what we know is that if the states are left alone to do their own thing on firearms, many of them would look at it and say, well, look, we're running this really expensive gun registry. What's it achieved? Um, nothing. It's yet, to, as <laughs> I said, right. yet to solve its first crime. Um, Canada's abandoned it. New Zealand never, well, they've had one long ago and abandoned it. They yeah. refused to start it again when Howard wanted to do it. And has the sky fallen in in those places? No, it hasn't. So therefore, what are we doing it for? And um, and they're you know they're always looking for ways to save money, and uh, you hope you hope that common sense may uh, prevail. Excellent. I got another email today from again one of the listeners, Mario, and this the first one may seem to be a little bit critical, but I'd like to get your take on it, see what your take is, and, the, and the, his second question I think is uh, quite quite positive. He says uh, in the third in the first question, the Shooters and Fishers uh, election report stated they offered to exchange preferences with the LDP. The LDP allegedly did not honour that deal. Is this correct? And what's your take on it, David? Thank you. Uh, there was no deal. They offered to exchange preferences with us. Yep. We said uh, that's not a good enough deal because they wanted to bring into the deal uh, our other two parties that we uh, control, Smokers' Rights Party and the Outdoor Recreation Party. Yep. And we said it's not an equal deal. And basically we, what we were looking for was a better deal than that. And we and we suggested what that better deal might be, mm-hmm. and that was ignored. So as we went into, and this, the, this happened less than 12 hours before, less than 24, I 
think less than 12 hours before nominations, uh, preferences had to be lodged. Okay. So it was the very last minute. And uh, so there was no deal. It was just a, you know, an exchange backwards and forwards of, of suggestions. Yep. And, and I also would mention that we never actually ever had any contact with the Shooters Party. The only person who ever contacted us was their paid agent, Glenn Drury. Okay, yeah, good stuff. That's a good one from Murray. And he follows up that one with, uh, what do you think the barriers are stopping smaller pro-gun parties uh, from working together in the future to get our freedoms back uh, and a favourable outcome for hunters, shooters and fishermen in this country? I'd like to see the AAA take the lead here. Mm. At the end of the day, political parties are competing somewhat. <coughs> um, we're probably not competing with the Greens, but... but <laughs> But parties that share certain policies are always competing for votes. And so the idea that we're all one big happy family and we should all just throw in our lot together is, is naive, to be frank. And so political parties are always going to see uh, differences from the other parties and say, well, we're the, we're the right one. That's just the nature of the beast. But organisations that, that represent groups of a constituency and thinking here of shooters and the SSAA and the other major organisations. Um, well, the New South Wales Shooting Association is different. It doesn't play, play party politics. It will talk to anyone. But the SSAA does. It's more or less a fundraiser for the Shooters and Fishers Party. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it doesn't acknowledge the LDP at all. It doesn't have any contact with us at all. It's, had, it's never given us a cent. It wouldn't put us on their website before the election. It's not mentioned us after the election. I'm a shooter and I'm in the Senate. Not a word. Not a word from a nationally, state, branch, anything. Not a single word. Mm. Now, now, are they there? Are they a front for the Shooters Party? Or are they there to represent shooters? Now, if, they're, if they are there to represent shooters, then they ought to be talking to every party Every party, not just the LDP and the Shooters and Fishers Party, but every party that is positive towards shooting issue. They should not be paying um, such obvious favourites as they are. Mm, uh, quite interesting. All right, that's, that's good. I'm glad you cleared some of those ones up. And good questions from the listeners. I really appreciate and Dave appreciates those too. Two questions to finish off. Dave, tell us a story about yourself. You know, maybe an achievement that stands out in your mind. It could be the, you know, the win in the Senate seat, uh, you know, a professional achievement, a hunting story, a general shooting story. You know, maybe a great day in the life of David Lineholm. <laughs> well... Um... Uh, you got to okay. say the Senate win, surely, don't you? <laughs> yeah, you don't have to, mate. Whatever sticks I'm, in your mind, you, you tell me. You tell the listeners what you want to. I'm very pleased that that we won a seat. I'm I've never aspired to be a politician myself, and uh, it's so I have mixed feelings about the fact that I have to do the job as opposed to <laughs> one of my colleagues in the party. I would have been totally delighted if one of the guys. One of our other candidates had been elected in, say, Queensland or WA or Victoria, and I had, you know, I mean, I was instrumental in in uh, our preferences and nominations and funding and all those sorts of things. I would have been able to say, okay, I don't have to be the front man, but I can be, you know, behind the scenes and make it all happen. I would have been quite happy with that. But as it happened, I was a candidate in New South Wales, and I got I'm the one who got elected, so now I also have to be the front man. So that's obviously an achievement, but um, I have to say that in the end, at the, one of the things I'm most proud of, in relation, especially in relation to firearms, is getting people to change their position. There is a an economist who is a, is a member of the party. What, I don't know whether he still is. He dropped out because he hated our guns policy. He thought it was extreme, and he just he just couldn't accept it. Mm -hmm. And um, but on everything else, every other issue, he is just a, just a wonderful supporter. He he's brilliant thinker, um, very well educated, um, very literate, could express himself beautifully well. But he just couldn't get his head around the gun issue, and he he got quite cranky with me. I um, I persevered. I tried all different ways of uh, getting to him. Eventually, I don't. 
I needed a bit of help. Another guy took him along to Malabar, this was before it got closed, and let him try shooting. And uh, um, I gave him a bit of advice on what to do beforehand and all that sort of stuff. And uh, blow me down if he hasn't changed his mind completely. He hasn't taken up shooting as a sport himself, but he now says, I now see what you see in it. I also now see why you have your policies as they are. I completely understand. And now he's, he's basically more or less dropped all his objections. I can't recall whether he's rejoined the party or not, but I expect he will. So I'm really, really pleased when something like that happens. What it proves is that if you're not dealing with bigots, bigots are people who take up a position and never change their mind no matter what. As long as you're not dealing with bigots, everyone is potentially savable from silly, silly attitudes. And, um, you know, you've got to really be encouraged by that sort of thing. No, no, good stuff, man. I, I always like hearing stories. Even if it's just sometimes, you know, for someone, yeah, it may not be the your, your Senate win. It's just that small story that really makes a difference in someone's life. And I'm always like, you know, getting uh, guests to share with the listeners there, you know, personal stories. And, you know, people always enjoy listening to them, as do I. So I guess to finish off, uh, David, if people wanted to check out the website, they want to join the party, they want to donate, they want to look up more of your policies from what we've spoken about uh, today, where can they go and who can they contact? Uh, website is ldp.org.au, ldp.org.au. Um, you can read our policies there. Uh, you can join online. You know, we have an online um, join-up system. We also have forms which can be downloaded and printed and you can send them off if you want to. We have two categories of membership. There's free membership which is um, honorary. You don't get to vote but you're still a member. You can still come to conferences and that sort of stuff and uh, you can still participate. And there is a financial membership uh, which entitles you to vote and uh, be um, elected to the national executive and things like that. All right, David, I appreciate you coming on to the show to tell us uh, you know, more about uh, the Liberal Democratic Party, what they stand for, some of their policies. Obviously, you know, since you've got your Senate seat, I can imagine you've come, you know, you've come quite a popular fellow, and, you know, not only radio stations, but what we're doing here, and lots of people obviously wanting to have a chat with you. And uh, I guess we'll uh, see what happens over the next you know, couple of years and um, see how things you know, turn up. You might get a time where you know, your, your vote may be required and um, it's just going to be great to uh, you know, yeah, see what happens. I guess we can't look into the future, can we? But hopefully you know, there'll be some positive changes, not just you know, for the shooting sports, but you know, other avenues as well and you know, trying to get away and trying to get back to our freedoms and get away from this government controlling every part of our life. Uh, it's not only happening here in New South Wales, but it's also happening other, in other uh, states around Australia. We're seeing, you know, major firearms issues in WA. Um, you know, some other states are more liberal than others in regards to firearms and hunting. And, you know, I guess we'll see what happens over the coming uh, couple of years. And I appreciate you coming on the show to have a chat with us and telling us more about the LDP and the success uh, that you had at the last election. So thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. I appreciate you having me. You've just been educated, and this is the Australian Hunting Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.